You're listening to the Northside Christian Church Podcast. Find out more about Northside by visiting us online at northsideweb.org. Thank you guys for giving today. And you just saw the pictures and, and uh, Rich was talking about that. Roro is the campus or the pastor at Haitian Christian Outreach. And they are a church planning organization in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. He was with us in this service, last, or with us in here last service. Right now he is giving a presentation, an update about his ministry in one of the classrooms. And he will be available in the lobby right after this service so that you guys can have an opportunity just to hear a little bit from him if you would like to, to talk to him, uh, which is a great opportunity. So row, row, keep playing, praying for Haitian Christian outreach. All right, today we're going to look at a very dangerous lie that has some very serious, real, and dangerous consequences. And I want you to know right off the bat that this is going to be a heavy day because we're talking about sin. This is going to be a tough subject for us to tackle. So since it's heavy, what I want us to do is start off with a light kind of fun activity. Sound good? All right, if you would look to the person to your left, this way, it'd be this way, all right. Everybody, I need to see a head turn. Look to the person to your left. All right, now look to the person at your right. Okay, turn around, take a good look at the people behind you. And now look at the people in front of you. Maybe for the front row, that's, you're looking at me, okay? So when I count to three, what I want you to do is point to the person nearest you that you think is the biggest sinner. Okay, one, two, three, point. I see somebody doing like a, everybody else but me. I do see a lot of people doing this, pointing at themselves. At least you're honest about your sin, right? How weird is that? Doesn't it feel a little strange to point at somebody else and say, you're a bigger sinner. Your sin is worse than my sin. Why is that? Well, the reality is we are all sinners. In our culture today, it's unacceptable to say what anyone else does is a sin, which leads to the common misbelief, this lie that I want us to talk about and address. You hear it all the time. Maybe you've even said it before. You might even believe it right now, but the lie the dangerous lie that we need to tackle is this. It doesn't matter what you do as long as nobody gets hurt. How many times have we heard that or said that? It doesn't matter what you do as long as nobody gets hurt. Right? You mind your business, I'll mind mine. As long as nobody gets hurt, then everything is fine. Guess what? God never said that. This is such a common misbelief because of one key word. Tolerance. Tolerance. What's interesting about this word is that it used to imply all people have equal value. That's what it originally meant. All people have equal value. But that definition has shifted in today's culture. In fact, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines tolerance as a willingness to accept feelings, habits, or beliefs that are different from your own. Did you catch that minor change? Tolerance has shifted from people to behaviors. As a Christian, I'm considered intolerant if I tell you that the lifestyle you're choosing to live is wrong. I'm intolerant if I call anything that you do sinful. 
Our society has continued to water down and sanitize what Jesus considered sinful by giving certain actions a new name. We kind of freshen it up so that it doesn't sound as bad as what it really is. For example, let's just take the category of sexual sin. Most people don't say that someone, their neighbor, committed adultery. What do we say? We say, oh, they just had an affair. Because that doesn't sound as harsh, right? It doesn't sound like a crime. Adultery is a crime. So we say they just had an affair. Instead of saying you're looking at pornography, we're just saying now they're just viewing adult entertainment. That doesn't sound as harsh, does it? It's more acceptable. Premarital sex isn't looked at as sin anymore. It's simply just kind of loosely talked about as fooling around or hooking up or going to watch Netflix and chill. Now, parents, grandparents, if you've not heard that phrase, it came out a couple years ago, if your son or daughter says, I'm going over to my boyfriend or girlfriend's house and we're just going to watch Netflix and chill, don't let them out the door because they're going to have sex. That is what the phrase means, all right? So now you're aware, don't let it happen. Don't let them leave the house. We've changed the title to make it feel less offensive to justify our own actions. However, it doesn't matter what you call sin. It is still sin. The reality is that sin is very real and has very dangerous consequences. Together, we're going to look at two common myths that sin tricks us into thinking and one truth that changes everything. Two myths and one truth that changes everything. So if you've got your pens and an outline, go ahead and get those out and jot this down. The first myth is this. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. Say that with me. I'm not a bad person. Okay, now I want you to say it like you really believe it. On three. One, two, three. Right, yeah, I heard some conviction in your voices there. I'm not a bad person. I hate to burst your bubble, but you are. In fact, you're a very bad person, and so am I. John says this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, in other words, if we say that we're not a bad person, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Paul levels the playing field for every person on the planet when he gets to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some, not most, but all. Every person on the planet has sinned, and what does he say? We fall short, which means we are devoid of excellence. That's the Greek there. We're devoid of excellence. We lack perfection because we all continue to screw up and disobey God. Satan is crafty. He's termed as the master of deception. He can use sin to trick us into believing that we're not all that bad. And this deception begins when we start playing the comparison game. When we compare ourselves to other people, we might be tempted to say, well, I'm not as bad as Steve. Did you hear what he said last night? Did you see what she did? Did you see what she posted on social media? I would never do anything like that. Of course We can always find someone much worse. Chances are they might be sitting right beside you. That was a joke. That was a joke. Okay. But here's the truth. The reality is other people are not the standard to which we are compared. You and I are compared to a perfect God. 
We cannot compare ourselves to other people because we're all flawed individuals. We have to compare ourselves to a perfect and holy God. And when we do that in light of God's holiness and perfection, you and I don't come close to being good. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, verse 6, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Paul says in Romans 3.10, There is no one righteous, not even one. Welcome to Northside, where our goal is to help you feel good about yourselves. No, that's not our goal. Our goal, our mission, is to help you love God, serve others, and win one. Our mission is to help you fulfill the Great Commission in Matthew 28. That's why it's plastered on all of our walls. That's why it's in all of our written material and on our website. We want you to love God, serve others, and win one. However, you cannot love God, which is the start, until you realize that you are separated from God because of your sin. So don't be tricked into thinking, I'm not a bad person. Yes, you are. We've all been separated from God because we're not perfect. We are devoid of excellence. The second myth that sin tricks us into believing is this. Since I've already done it, oh, I might as well just keep on doing it. Right? Since I've already messed up, I might as well just do it again. Wrong, God didn't say that either. But this is a very, very easy lie to believe. And as I was thinking about this, I came up with a list of things where we could use this as, a, as an excuse. So here's a couple. Since I'm not a virgin anymore, I might as well just keep on having sex. Since I've already tried alcohol and drugs a few times and it didn't really mess me up, I might as well try them again. Since I've cheated before and not gotten caught, it's no big deal. Let me cheat on the next test. Since I've been unfaithful once, my marriage is over anyway. Why not do it again? I already looked at something that I know was wrong, but I managed to erase my tracks. So what's the harm in repeating my actions because it's not hurting anybody else? You see, this myth about sin is not new. In fact, Paul dealt with this thousands of years ago with the very early Christians, and he writes something in Romans chapter 6, which I believe we need to consider today. He says this, Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, and I want us to read this out loud together. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You see, what sin does is it tricks us into thinking that if God is going to forgive us anyway, then we shouldn't have to stop our sinful behavior. Paul's response to that ludicrous statement is, by no means. What punctuation mark is right after that? Exclamation, okay. I want you to know that this is some of the strongest language Paul ever used. In the Greek, it is the phrase, genomai me genomai, and it's literally translated, may it never be. Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? May it never be. Should we keep on sinning because we know that we can turn to God and repent later? May it never be. Absolutely not. Since we have died to sin, we must no longer live in it. 
Through the blood of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, our sin nature does not control our lives anymore. Christians, we forget that, don't we? We are not controlled by sin's power. We now have the power of Christ. So why in the world will we continue to step back in that mess and to go back to the things that got us in trouble in the first place, the things that break God's heart, that cause separation between us and him, and that have the potential to damage others around us? As a Christian, if we believe the lie that it's okay to keep on sinning, because it's not hurting anybody else or because we know that God's going to forgive us anyway, that reveals a huge lack of spiritual maturity. Here's the deal. Spiritual maturity is not about how much we know. It's about how much we obey. Spiritual maturity is not about how much we know. It's about how much we obey. It's not about having more knowledge. It's about producing more fruit. It isn't just learning more, it's allowing the Holy Spirit to take over our lives and that we now are obedient to him. We obey Jesus, not because we're commanded to, but because we love him. It is our desire to make him smile, so that's why we obey. The problem that I've seen throughout my entire lifetime, and I'm sure you have as well, is this. Many Christians today are educated well beyond their level of obedience, Many Christians today are educated well beyond their level of obedience. And maybe you're thinking of someone right now. I've got a list of names. You know whose name's at the top? Mine. I am educated. I know about the Bible. I've read it multiple times. I am educated well beyond my level of obedience. So I know that I'm preaching to the choir. I have to start on me. When we do this, when we begin to obey more than we learn, that's when we're set free from the lies, the traps, and the sin that so easily entangles us. It is then that we begin producing fruit for God's glory. Pastor John Weiss shared something very powerful during a message that I heard him preach a few years ago. He was explaining the pattern of sin in a way that I hadn't thought of before, and he said that the track or the pattern for sin is this. Minimization leads to normalization, which leads to celebration. That's a little bit wordy, so I want to break it down for you. Minimization leads to normalization, which leads to celebration. Take pornography, for example. The first time nude pictures were made public in America, there was shock. There was disgust. There was an outrage by almost every single Christian. But after a while the sin of pornography became minimized. People's response soon became, well, if it's this public, and if so many people are looking, then it must not be that bad. We minimized the sin. Next, we normalized it. What started as a magazine led to a multi-billion dollar industry that can be accessed with the push of a button from anywhere in the world. Technology and the internet normalize pornography so that everybody thinks that it's not a big deal because it's readily available. If you were to ask the majority of teenagers living today, right here, even the ones in the church, I've asked this question at previous churches, and the response is the same. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Nudity, not a big deal. Pornography, eh, I don't know that it's quite as sinful as you say it is. You know why? Because that's all they've ever known. Because that is the world that they are growing up in. Because that is what we have allowed to take place. 
Normalization then led to celebration. So many people in our country celebrate and idolize the ones who sell and show off their bodies for sex. I recently heard that in Europe, many hotels, get this, many hotels have begun pulling out the copies of the Bible and replacing it with copies of Fifty Shades of Grey. Let that sink in for a moment. Hotels in Europe are removing the Bible and putting in its place Fifty Shades of Grey of gray. And I hate to tell you, but America is not far behind. I can see that taking place here 10 or 15 years down the road if Jesus does not come back before then. Minimization leads to normalization, which leads to celebration. That's how sin works. And when we step back and think about sin, a scary reality sets in. The most miserable people are not non-Christians. The most miserable people that I know are Christians who continue to live in sin. The most miserable people are believers in Jesus who know that there's freedom readily available to them, but yet they go back to the very thing that separated them from God in the first place. So don't be tricked. God never said, it doesn't matter what you do as long as nobody gets hurt. It most certainly does, and here's why. Because sin leads to death, eternal death, eternity in hell, damnation. You can call it whatever you want to. Sin leads to death. That's why Paul was so adamant in Romans when he says, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. May it never be. So what's the solution? What's the answer? What's the one big truth that changes everything? It's this, there's more grace in God than sin in people. And if you forget everything else that I say this morning, I do not want you to forget that. In fact, say it out loud with me. There's more grace in God than sin in people. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5. He says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. There is more grace in God than sin in people. So please, please understand that God's grace is greater than your lust. Grace is greater than your pride. Grace is greater than your fear. Grace is greater than your lies. Grace is greater than your addiction. Grace is greater than your anger. Grace is greater than your hate. Grace is greater than anything, anything that you put in that space. In your outline, there is a blank right there. Don't clap, don't clap. I want you to really think about this, internalize it. When you go home today, I want you to fill in that blank. What is the thing that you are struggling with? What's that sin you keep going back to? Write it down. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Tape it to your uh, car so that you see every single day God's grace is greater than anything that you put there. Now you can clap. Amen. Okay. We started out this morning by reading 1 John 1 verse 8. I want us to look at that one more time. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Don't be deceived. We're full of sin. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. 
the question becomes, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Thankfully, Paul tells us the answer in the very next verse. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify, purify us from all unrighteousness. You and I can receive freedom from our sin by confessing those things to God. We have to admit, I screwed up. God, I am struggling with this. I am not strong enough to leave that behind. I am sorry, God, I need your grace. And please understand that we don't confess our sins to earn his forgiveness. We've already been forgiven through what Jesus did on the cross. We confess our sins out of obedience to God because we love him. We should tell God our struggles and we should allow him to help us overcome whatever that is because there is healing that comes through confession. Even though we mess up, even though we sin regularly, daily, hourly, maybe you sinned on the way to church this morning, maybe you said a bad word in anger because of the slow poke driving in front of you and you were already late. Maybe you messed up, okay? The good news is this. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. It doesn't matter what you're trapped in. It doesn't matter what you've said. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how long you've been stuck. God always gives you a way out because his grace is greater. And I love what Titus 2.11 says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to who? To all people. To all people, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of the salary or your income, regardless of where you live, regardless of what you've done. God's grace offers salvation to all people. And some of you need to recognize that today, that you're trapped in sin. You need to believe that Jesus is the one who can free you. You need to repent of your sin. You need to confess Christ as Lord and be baptized just like Ryan did a few moments ago. You need to step out of your sin and step into Jesus through faith. And you're going to have an opportunity to do that in just a few minutes. But what I want to do right now is I just want to read you a story. This is one I heard a couple years ago. It is a little bit lengthy, so just kind of sit tight with me. There's going to be some music playing in the background, but I want you to read. Maybe close your eyes. This story fits so, so well with all the passages that we just read. It's called The Prince and the Dragon. There once was a great and noble king whose land was terrorized by a wicked and crafty dragon. Like a massive bird of prey, the scaly beast delighted in ravaging villages with his fiery breath. Hapless victims ran from the burning homes only to be snatched into the dragon's jaws or talons. The king led his sons and knights in many valiant battles against the serpent. Riding alone in the forest, one of the king's sons heard his name purred soft and low. Lost in thoughts of restlessness and loneliness in his father's house, the young prince thought for a moment that he was hearing things. He felt a strange hesitation in his heart. Again, his name was called. And the shadows of the ferns and trees curled among the boulders lay the dragon. 
The heavy-lidded eyes of the creature fastened ablaze on the prince, and the reptilian mouth stretched into a seductive smile. Don't be alarmed, said the dragon, as gray wisps of smoke rose lazily from his nostrils. I am not what your father thinks of me. What are you then, demanded the prince, instinctively drawing his sword as he pulled in the reins to keep his frightened horse from bolting. I am more than what you've been told, my prince, said the dragon unashamedly. I am delight. I am pleasure. Noticing the prince's hesitation, the serpent cried, Ride on my back and you will experience what few can only imagine, what no king has yet experienced. Come now, believe me. I have no harmful intentions. Truly, I seek only a friend, someone to share my flights with me. I'm lonely. Do you understand loneliness? Have you never dreamed of flying, my prince? Never longed to soar in the clouds? Never longed to take what isn't yours? The prince felt intoxicated. Was it the smoke that seemed to curl its way toward him with every word? Or was it the words themselves? Visions of soaring high above the forested hills of his father's kingdom drew the prince hesitantly from his horse. And the dragon was stunning, captivatingly beautiful. The prince had never seen emerald so green as the dragon's coat. As he marveled at its strange beauty, his curiosity brought him closer. Knowingly, the dragon unfurled one great webbed wing, brilliantly adorned in gemstones stolen from some kingdom past. Come, my prince, come ride with me. In one fateful decision, the prince sheathed his sword and placed his hands and feet on the brilliant stones, climbing atop the emerald staircase to the serpent's back. The dragon rose immediately to his feet. The prince had been deceived of its size, for now it seemed far more powerful and immense than many horses. The creature snapped its great wings twice, launching them both into the sky. The prince's apprehension melted into exhilaration as he felt the awesome rule of the wind beneath him and the fragrant breeze on his face. From then on, he met the dragon often, but secretly. For how could he tell his father and brothers and knights that he had befriended the kingdom's greatest enemy? Quickly, the prince began to feel separate from everyone. The kingdom's concerns were no longer his. Even when he wasn't stealing away secretly to be with the dragon, he spent less time with those that he loved. More and more, he spent his time alone or with the creature. The skin on the prince's legs began to callous from gripping the dragon's rigid back. His hands grew rough and hardened. He began wearing gloves to hide the malady. And after many nights of riding the dragons, scales began growing on the backs of his hands as well. With dread, he realized his fate were he to continue. And so he resolved to return no more to the dragon. But after a fortnight, he began again sought out the dragon, having been tortured with desire. And this transpired many times over. No matter what the determination, the prince eventually found himself pulled back as if by the cords of an invisible web. The dragon's charm, so gentle in the beginning, now held the prince more tightly than he had the will to resist. Silently, patiently, the serpent always waited. 
One cold, moonless night, their excursion became a foray against the sleeping village. Torching the thatched roofs with fiery blasts from his nostrils, the dragon roared with delight when the terrified victims fled from their burning homes. Swooping in, the serpent belched again, and the flames engulfed a cluster of screaming villagers. The prince closed his eyes tightly in an attempt to shut out the horror and the carnage, but he could not. Sometimes he even allowed himself to feel the old thrill. And then, in bitter remorse, his heart sinking in shame, he tried to hide himself. But the flames of the burning village lighted on his face. In the pre-dawn hours, when the prince crept back from this dragon trist, the road outside his father's castle usually remained empty. But not tonight. Terrified refugees streamed into the protective walls of the castle. The prince attempted to slip through the crowd to close himself off in his chambers, but some of the survivors stared and pointed toward him. He, he was there, one woman cried out. I saw him on the dragon's back. Others nodded their heads in riotous agreement. Some stared in disbelief and growing recognition. Horrified, the prince saw that his father, the king, was in the courtyard holding a bloodstained and seemingly dead child in his arms. His face mirrored the agony of the child's mother. He looked up at the angry cries and his eyes found the princes. The son fled, hoping to escape into the night, but the guards apprehended him as if he were a common thief. They brought him to the great hall where his father sat solemnly on his throne and people from every side rallied against the prince banish him he heard one of his own brothers say burn him alive let him burn the way that he burned our children and our homes the king rose from his throne bloodstains shone darkly on his royal robes and the crowd fell silent in expectation of his decree the prince who could not bear to look into his father's face stared down at the flagstone floor take off your gloves and your tunic, demanded the king. Was his shame not already enough? The prince had hoped for a quick death without further humiliation. Now he resigned himself to his fate. He obeyed, slowly, agonizingly, dreading to have his metamorphosis uncovered before the entire kingdom. Sounds of revulsion rippled through the crowd and parents covered their children's eyes at the sight of the prince's thick, scaled skin and the ridge now growing along his spine. How could this be? The thought was so ghastly that many turned away in disgust. But the king strode toward his son. The prince steeled himself. He fully expected a backhanded blow, even though he had never been struck by his father before. Instead, his father pulled him to himself, embraced him, holding him tightly, and wept. In shocked disbelief, the prince buried his face against his father's shoulder in a way that he hadn't done in a long time. Tears began burning down his scorched cheeks. Do you wish to be freed from the dragon, my son? The prince answered in despair, Father, I have wished this so many times, but there remains no hope for me. Not alone, said the king. You cannot win against the serpent alone. Father, what I have done, I am no longer your son. I am half beast, sobbed the prince bitterly. 
He began to convulse in such cruel remorse that even the villagers pitied him. But his father replied, my blood still runs through your veins. My nobility has always been stamped deep within your soul. With his face still hidden tearfully in his father's embrace, the prince heard the king instruct the crowd. This dragon is crafty. Some fall victim to his wiles, for he is a great deceiver. Some fall to his violence, for he only has wickedness in his heart. But there will be mercy this night for all who wish to be freed. Who else among you has ridden the dragon? The prince lifted his head to see someone emerge from the crowd. And to his astonishment, he recognized an older brother, one who was known throughout the kingdom for his onslaughts against the dragon in battle and for his many good deeds. And others came. Some came weeping. Others hung their heads in shame. But the king, the king embraced This is our most powerful weapon against the dragon, he announced. Truth. Truth. No more hidden flights. Alone, we cannot resist him. Friends, I want you to know that alone, there's nothing you can do to resist the dragon, the serpent, the deceiver, the father of lies, the one who has torn us away from our heavenly father time and time again. God knew that. That's why he sent us his one and only son. This is what he says, Ephesians 1, 7, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So it doesn't matter what you've done and it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. There is freedom today if you want to stop riding the dragon, but you cannot do it alone. God loved us so much that he gave us his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He traded Jesus for you and for me, even though he knew we didn't deserve it. He gave us grace, even though he knew we could not earn it. So if you're here this morning and you're ready to stop riding the dragon, if you want to be freed from your sin, then I want to invite you to come. We're going to sing a couple songs. There's going to be an opportunity for you to respond. Maybe you just need prayer. You need to take some time and confess some things to God. You don't have to tell me, but talk to him over these next few moments. Or maybe you recognize that you need Jesus in your life and you've never had him. I'd love the opportunity to talk to you and to pray with you this morning. So whatever decision you have, just please come as we stand and as we sing right now. Stand with me.